Well, over the last number of weeks, we have been going through what we're calling the marks of the apostolic church. And uh, so, so far, we have looked at the mark of the word. We've looked at the mark of fellowship. Last week, we looked at the mark of prayer. And today, we're going to look at the mark of repentance. And one thing that I hope has one thing that I hope has been clear throughout these weeks is that we're not simply saying that these things would exist or uh, that these things would be in our language. So we're a church that talks about the Bible or we're a church that uh, has a, a time for fellowship or a time for prayer or even a time for a call to repentance, that, but that we actually understand these things as the apostles did. And we actually look at these things in the way that the Bible looks at them. And, and so as we are looking at the marks of the church, I hope that we are, we are allowing God by His Spirit to reveal what these things truly are in His Word. And so today I hope that will be the case certainly for this subject of repentance. And, and I also believe, and well, I think it's very, going to be very clear that this is going to, be a challenging thing. This is such a challenging subject for the human heart, this idea of biblical repentance, because it literally means to change one's mind or to change one's way of thinking, which also means that then we would have to admit that our former way of thinking was wrong, misguided. Also, I hope that we will see that repentance is not just this one-time decision and then we're never repentant again. So I feel like I've met a number of people and I've probably fallen into this category too many times, but who have repented at one point in their life and then they've never been wrong again since. And so this idea of repentance or this understanding of repentance is one that's going to challenge us. It's going to be so challenging to our human hearts because we have this complex. So let's just go ahead and start it off like this. We have this complex of wanting to be worshipped. And you may say, I have no desire for someone to fall down in front of me and begin to bow and worship me. So understand that's not what I mean. But what I mean is, is that we don't want to be wrong. We want to be right. And I think this is so true right now because there are so many of you that are saying, Jake's trying to preach just to me right now. But I promise you this is widespread throughout our congregation. And this is in my heart, my desire to want to be right, to never want to be wrong. We desperately want people to say you're right. We desperately, some of our favorite words are, you know what, I realized you were right. We long to hear people say that. That's a problem. But if repentance defines us, true biblical repentance, and if true biblical repentance flows throughout this church, if it moves freely within our midst, guess what will happen? We will be wrong a lot. We will be wrong often, and then we will be able to talk about it. And you know what? And I've had a week to deal with this and work through this and say, Lord, I I need help here. But I want us to be a people who can be okay with being wrong a lot. 
We can be okay with that, and we can be honest about that. And I desperately want to become that person, and I believe that's something that marked the apostolic church. They were repentant their entire lives. They were wrong a lot. And they were able to accept correction. They were able to admit it, confess their sin. So let's do this. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at a parable, one of Jesus' parables. And we're going to look at this subject of repentance and repentance as it marked the apostolic church and how it can mark us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us now. Father, guide us through this passage. Guide us in the way that you would want us to go. Take us there. Father, help us to see how this is so freeing. To be able to admit our wrongs, be honest with ourselves and one another, be honest before you, which leads to the embrace of the cross embrace of the works of Christ, His perfect righteousness that has been granted to us that we have not earned nor merited. Father, guide us there. Help us see that wonderful truth. We pray all this in the righteous name of Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 15. I'll start in verse 1 and I'll read through verse I'll read through verse 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as some of you may know, this, these two parables actually come together with a third, the parable of the two sons or the, par- the parable of the prodigal, which speak to this issue of biblical repentance. So I hope that we'll see this, that repentance is not simply a single one-time decision that we make, but it is a mark of a new life that changes the way that we think and live. Francis Schaeffer in his book, How Should We Then Live? This is what he said. He is talking about presuppositions. He said this, People have presuppositions, and by presuppositions we mean the basic way an individual looks at life, his basic worldview, the grid through which he sees the world. 
presuppositions rest upon that which a person considers to be the truth of what exists. People's presuppositions, which are a basis of their values and decisions, also lay a grid for all they bring forth into the external world. What repentance does is it changes our presuppositions. It changes the way that we see things. It changes how we think. It changes how we make decisions and then carry out those decisions. And I believe that one of the most important things that true repentance does is it completely changes the way that we view repentance. Repentance changes the way that we actually see repentance. We may have a presupposition of what repentance means. Or we may have this presupposition of what repentance means based on what somebody else has told us or based on what we just naturally think about it. But true repentance will actually change that view. And so I want us to look at three ways that the Bible presents repentance or three ways that we need to look at it and understand it. And, and the first one is, and you see this on the screen, so I'm going to start with the first one, being found by the shepherd. Now the Bible very often describes us, you and me, as sheep. And it describes Jesus as the shepherd. This passage, of course, is no exception. Now we can talk about the flock of God and we can speak of it in sentimental terms, kind terms. Let's make sure we understand this reference and this parallel of sheep here to us and understand that we, like sheep, have gone astray. And so the first thing I want us to see about the understanding of sheep as it relates to you and me is that this, by Jesus, by other biblical writers, is a very cogent insult, a spiritual insult to us. Sheep wander off. Sheep have no sense of direction. Sheep will see one blade of grass on the edge of a cliff and they'll go for it, putting themselves in a place in which they could never get out of. Many of you know my beloved dog of 15 years, Scout. Now, Scout has always had a mind of her own, and in many ways it was a very smart mind. I, I feel like there were times where I thought this is the smartest dog on the planet. She has lived a life where she would do her own thing and come and go as she pleased and come home when she was ready, explore, come back since we've lived here. There were days when she would get bored at home and so she would make her way down here to the church and I'd hear a scratch on the door right out here and she had shown up to sit right under the air conditioner in my office. Now in the last year or so, it has been very clear that she would wander off and not be able to find her way home. She's got a tag on her collar, and uh, every now and then I, will, I have gotten a call from someone, and she has gone to places that she's never been before. And then when I would show up, you could tell she was obviously disoriented. So I've really tried lately to follow the rules and keep her in my backyard fenced in because it is clear that her mind is slowing down. As she wanders off and she can't find her way back. She puts herself in real danger. She's crossing busy roads, things like that. And so, I, and I say this with all seriousness, 
But in a lighthearted way, I, I'm sure she has dementia. In all, really, I'm sure that she is getting dementia. And I say this to make this point. When the Bible describes us as sheep, it is describing you, as, you and me as scout with dementia. Do you understand the insult there? Clear, honest, spiritual insult. We are lost. We're unable to find our way. And we must have someone come to get us. We must. We're scout with dementia. We can't find our way back. And we must have someone that seeks us out and finds us and, and hears us and wants to get us. That wants us. Now this means that we are to see that we are not part of the flock that are genetically gifted and therefore we have found our way to the shepherd. Or that we are smart enough to stay in the vicinity of the shepherd. Now this understanding shames the human race. Because even though we are made in the image of God and have the ability to be creative and successful and progressive and caring and able to reason, this is saying you who have done well in life were born spiritually bankrupt and are described as sheep. Or if it helps you see it, you're described as scout with dementia. There's a lady named Camille Palia, and she's a self-proclaimed feminist, but she's an honest one. And I want to read something that she recently wrote. Well, this has been a couple of years ago that she wrote. She's a very insightful person into who we are as people. And this is what she has said. She says, The basic leftist premise descending from Marxism is that all problems in human life stem from an unjust society, and that corrections and fine-tunings of that social mechanism will eventually bring utopia. Progressives have unquestioned faith in the perfectibility of mankind. The horrors and atrocities of history have been edited out of primary and secondary education, except where they can be blamed on racism and sexism. Toxins embedded in oppressive outside structures that must be smashed and remade. So do you see that she's saying that this agenda looks to deny the sinful heart, the, our natural, natural tendency towards evil? She goes on to say, but the real problem resides, listen to how honest this is, but the real problem resides in human nature which religion, as well as great art, sees as eternally torn by a war between the forces of darkness and light. Liberalism lacks a profound sense of evil, but so does conservatism these days. When evil is projected onto a foreign host of rising political forces united only in their rejection of Western values, nothing is more simplistic than the now rote use by politicians and pundits of the cartoonish label bad guys for jihadists as if American foreign policy is a slapdash script for a cowboy movie. Now, please feel free to ask me to see that quote if you would like to read it in um, more depth. What she is saying is, is that the problem is human nature. Liberalism denies 
human nature at all as evil in any sense of the word, that it's envi- everything's environmental. But she also pegs conservatism. She pegs the church in many cases because she explains that what the church sees often is that the evil is over there. And we're here to save the day. That they need repentance. That we don't need repentance. Now, Mrs. Paglia offered a very insightful observation. But she didn't and she doesn't know where to turn to for a solution. Or she doesn't know where to turn to for a different way. The Bible tells us that the solution is found in the gospel where our shepherd comes to do something for us that we could never do. And that solution is found in the gospel where repentance is at the center. Where when Jesus speaks, the tax collectors begin to draw near. Because he begins to move them with the understanding of repentance. Now, this is a spiritual insult, but also this passage speaks of what a true shepherd does for his lost sheep, and he describes our value. He describes our worth in the eyes of God because this passage tells us that he will leave everything, everything behind to come and find his wayward sheep. He will seek diligently to find that lost coin. He longs to be, to come where we are. And so this is to say, as spiritually bankrupt as we were, as opposed as we were to the Lord, He never hesitated to come and retrieve us because of our value. So let's ask these questions. Ask these questions along with me. Did you give God something good to work with? Did you meet Him halfway or a quarter of the way? Did God value you because you made yourself valuable? If you did, even if you believe those questions, then you might have to get deep into your heart. If you believe those questions even slightly, then you're misunderstanding real repentance. And we must start here to understand true and real biblical repentance. So, first, understanding repentance is understanding being found by the shepherd. It's also understanding being tended by the shepherd. Now, continuing with my illustration about my dog, Scout. I think she's also forgotten at times that I love her. (laughs) Because when I go to get her, there are times when she wants to turn away. When I take her to her backyard... She fights against that to, to times where I have to pick her up and carry her or drag her by the collar to get her back there. She definitely, she never walks by my side into the backyard. So in other words, even though I've found her, I don't, get, I don't just get to tell her to go home or I don't just get to tell her to behave. Now look at verse 5 in chapter 15 of Luke. This is what Jesus says that the shepherd does when he finds the lost sheep. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So what's happening here? The shepherd 
Understand, the shepherd does not leave his field in frustration to go and look for his sheep, and then when he finds that sheep, he then scolds the animal and demands that it goes home and begins to act right immediately. No, the shepherd seeks and saves the lost, and then he lifts up his sheep and carries us, not in frustration like you and I would do, but with rejoicing. So the shepherd tends his sheep by giving us So the shepherd finds his sheep, and then the shepherd tends his sheep by giving us a heart of repentance and a heart of faith. Where life is lived through continual repentance and continual belief in the gospel. Again, not just a one-time decision, but continually we are recognizing our fallenness and our brokenness. Continually needing to believe in the gospel of Christ. We're soon approaching Reformation Day, the end of October. The day when we celebrate how Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Do you know what the first of the 95 Theses stated? So there's this list of 95 things. Most of us learned about that that list. But listen to what the very first one said. Luther wrote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, which comes from Matthew 4.17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is how He began the whole list. That the entire life of believers would be one of repentance. He understood that this has to extend into all of life. Every day, We must have a heart of repentance. And this happened through his trials, Martin Luther's trials and difficulties, his devastation over his sin, the fact that he was never becoming righteous on his own. He came to a point that he believed as a priest he was going to be damned for eternity all because of his sinful heart. Now he understood his fallenness. But there was a long part of his life where he didn't find the gospel. But then he discovered the gospel in the book of Romans. And this started everything that we know about the Reformation. And he began to see that his entire life and that our entire life had to be one of seeing our need for Christ, looking, seeking Him out as He seeks us out, longing for our shepherd. In other words, we never graduate to being sheep without the need for a shepherd. We never get to that place. We never move to another level where we no longer need our shepherd. And therefore, we never stop being wrong. We never stop being fallen. And even so, we never stop being loved and pursued and cared for by our shepherd. So do you struggle with this kind of repentance? Do you struggle with admitting failures or losing arguments, asking for forgiveness, confessing sin? There are a lot of tools and things that help you get better at being right and winning arguments. Just Google how to win arguments. You'll be flooded with things. The gospel's different. The gospel helps us to be wrong. The gospel helps us to lose. The gospel helps us 
to admit our sin. I also want us to see, and I'll hurry through this, identifying, understanding repentance is understanding how to identify with the work of the shepherd. And so, as we've looked at this, let's not miss all that Jesus is doing and saying here and who he's speaking to. Who is there in his midst? And then look at the last, ver- the last statement in chapter 14. So look right above where Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then what happens? 15.1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners are drawing in. This would include prostitutes, thieves. This would include those who we would consider below us, not worthy. But here's what Jesus is saying. They have ears that are hearing, and they're drawing in. They're coming closer. My pastor in college was a very soft-spoken man when you were one-on-one listening with him. But his wisdom to me was so valuable. He was the only person that I knew that no matter where you saw him, people would be leaning in. Nobody else could get this kind of attention. But people would always lean into hearing because he was so soft-spoken. Jesus is preaching here, and tax collectors and sinners are beginning to draw in because they want to hear. They have ears to hear. All the while, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, preachers of the law, explainers of the law, they're grumbling and they're distancing themselves from Christ. Then after the story, Jesus says, Joy in heaven comes when one sinner repents. This does not happen by noticing the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's repentance that brings joy to the heavenly realms because it's repentance that brings people into the family and into the community of God, the community of grace. So as tax collectors and sinners are Drawing in, what is this telling us? That Jesus is building a community of those that are sinners. They're the ones that are coming into Jesus' community. The tax collectors, the sinners, those that need repentance. Who, Who are the ones that are backing away? Who are the ones that are getting outside of the community? It's the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones who believe they need no repentance. Or the ones who may believe that they repented one time and now they're right for the rest of their life. Now how does this happen? How does this work? How could this community ever... If someone said, let me teach you how to build a community, they would say the exact opposite of what Jesus is doing here. They would never tell Jesus to bring in who He is bringing in. And they would never tell Jesus to distance himself from those that he's distancing himself from. So how does this happen? Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 describes Jesus as the chief shepherd, just as Jesus describes himself here in this parable. 
John in Revelation 5, 6 describes Jesus as the Lamb standing as though He had been slain. So we have Peter, an apostle, describing the Messiah as the chief shepherd. And then we have John, an apostle, describing Jesus as a lamb. So how does Jesus make a community of faith, a community of God's children out of sinners? Because He, the shepherd, the shepherd became the lamb. He becomes the lost sheep. The shepherd becomes the lost sheep. Now, if the shepherd became the sheep, let us also see that he turns the community of sheep into a community of shepherds. He turns a community of sinners, of weak sinners, into shepherds that care for the sheep and go after the sheep who care for one another and build up one another, who teach one another, who lead one another, serve each other, are honest with each other, forgiving each other, while living a life of repentance. May we see how repentance, may we see that repentance marks the church in such a way that the church looks to draw in the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the homosexuals, the thieves the abused, and that they're all repentant together and they're all pursuing their shepherd together and they're all being carried by their shepherd together. That we see that the chief shepherd became the lamb and then he makes the sheep shepherds who are repentant. This is what the gospel teaches us about repentance. It takes us, the gospel goes deep into our hearts to say that the entire life has to be about repentance. That it never, that that repentance never stops in this life. That on our deathbed, the, the persevering one is the one who is repentant on his deathbed, on our deathbed. This is the gospel. And this is possible because the chief shepherd became the lost sheep. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a repentant people and not not just something that has happened in the past. Father, I pray that we would begin to use the word repentance as a, in the present tense, something that is ongoing, something that, we, that defines us, marks us as a church, that flows freely within our midst, helping us to be wrong, being honest with one another, admitting our failures and our weakness. And that that would then lead to glorifying the name of our Lord and Savior, the chief shepherd who has come to get us, who is continuing to tend his sheep, lifting us up, building us up, teaching us, shepherding us, and then 
putting us in positions to be shepherds, caring for one another, and going out to retrieve the lost sheep. We pray all this in Christ's name.